Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law360 here in Washington. And joining me now from our New York studio is co-host and Law360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. How's it going, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. It's It's been a busy week. I feel like the justices heard you last week talking about how they were behind pace uh, for the term, and they are catching up with a bunch of opinions. Um, so we're going to be talking about at least one of those opinions today, along with a case that was taken up um, this week and getting into a preview of arguments for June Medical, which is obviously one of the high profile cases that um, has been on our radar and is coming up for arguments next week. So yeah, a lot to, lot to dig into. Yeah, but before we get into some of the new cases, we obviously have to catch our listeners up if they haven't heard about it already. Uh, the little Twitter dust up between the President of the United States and Justice Sonia Sotomayor and, of course, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So you want to just set the scene really quickly so we can get this out of the way because, you know, it's one of those things that you have to talk about even though it's a little bit expected because we've seen so often Trump clashing with not only members of the Supreme Court but basically everyone in the judiciary. Yeah, well, I mean, so, look, we've talked about how there's been all these emergency requests to the court uh, that keep popping up uh, this term. And Justice Sotomayor uh, basically was like, you know, this we are partly to blame for this. We keep rewarding the Trump administration by granting these requests. Um, that made news, um, including a Fox segment uh, on Laura Ingram. And uh, that seems to have uh, kickstarted a bit of a tweet storm from, from President Trump, who calls for Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg, who has previously made comments about the Trump administration, to recuse themselves on all Trump and Trump-related cases. Yeah, it was it was actually Justice uh, Ginsburg's faker uh, comment back during the 2016 <laughs> election that prompted the president's wrath once again, and he basically says, you guys should recuse themselves from all Trump-related cases. It's obviously going to go nowhere, but, you know, we have to talk about it just because it plunges the Supreme Court further into this political fray that is no doubt causing Chief Justice John Roberts a migraine. Yeah, he has to be, like, doubling up on either, like, antacid medicine or, like, <laughs> aspirin at this point. <laughs> um, but, you know, obviously the court uh, doesn't shy away, though, from high-profile and sticky cases. And on Monday, they took one of those up. Um, uh, a religious rights case that could impact LGBT employment rights. Um, it is kind of in the vein of Masterpiece Cake Shop and the Flores case we talked about uh, a few episodes back, uh, known as Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. So basically this case, um, in Philadelphia, there's a Catholic social service agency um, that had a contract with the City of Philadelphia. Um, but after it came to light that the agency doesn't foster children with same-sex couples, the city of Philadelphia declined to renew that contract. Um, so, uh, you know, at the base of it, the, the agency is appealing a Third Circuit decision that went against it, um, and it's asking the court to revisit this issue and, you know, basically asking whether the city of Philadelphia is, re is infringing on its religious liberties. Yeah, so this is obviously a huge headline maker with the fact of uh, the actual facts of the case, it, it, it presenting this really fascinating issue of, you know, whether a Catholic foster care agency can exclude same-sex couples from, um, you know, the, the foster parents that it does business with. But beyond that, the legal issue at the center of it is fascinating as well. So the court has agreed to reconsider its landmark 
free exercise clause precedent in the in the 1990 case employment division versus smith so uh, you know natalie we've talked a bit about this off air but this is you know a huge precedent in the supreme court that basically raised the bar on free exercise claims from you know religious litigants saying that you know if 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 something, if you have a claim for something um, uh, infringing upon your free exercise, your ability to exercise religion, as long as it's a valid and neutral law of general applicability, um, this is okay. So this precedent has become increasingly unpopular with conservatives over the years, even though it was authored by you know Justice uh, Antonin Scalia um, back in the day. Um, and I just wanted to just kind of lay that out there because obviously, even though the facts of the case are very newsworthy in the in and of themselves the actual legal issue itself is it is, has pretty broad implications across the board yeah that was the big news definitely on monday uh on tuesday though the court uh also made some big news with a 5-4 decision um in uh, the case uh, kind of known as the cross-border shooting case so so for listeners who aren't uh, as familiar the case was hernandez versus mesa and it involved a family of a Mexican teenager who was fatally shot by a U.S. Border Patrol agent across the border. Um, and the family was co- seeking to collect damages in, through the U.S. court system. Um, the decision, though, which was authored by Justice Alito, upheld a Fifth Circuit decision that said no, <laughs> basically. Um, and it said that, you know, the court said that they couldn't extend a remedy known as Bivens to the situation. So, you know, in 1971, the Supreme Court had a ruling Bivens versus six unknown named agencies um, that allows people to collect money damages if their constitutional rights have been violated by a federal officer, as in this case, and there was no alternative legal remedy. Um Justice Alito said, though, that the court couldn't step into the role of Congress on this and extend that remedy um, in this kind of case. And, you know, he also mentioned, you know, that there could be national security or foreign affairs implications in allowing damages remedies in a, in a cross-border shooting case. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. Uh, in Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dissent, she points out that, um, you know, the the Bivens remedy, um, which, you know, as, as Alito says, is, is not authorized by statute. It's by the precedent of the Supreme Court itself that, you know, parents or, you know, anyone who's had their Fourth Amendment rights violated can sue like an officer for, for damages. You know, it's it's basically the end of the road for the for the family here because, you know, the, the case had gone up um, to the Supreme Court before. It was revived on, you know, procedural grounds. But at this point, the Supreme Court has finally slammed the, the courthouse doors um, to the to the uh, to the uh, parents of this uh, Mexican teenager, um, Sergio Hernandez, um, who was playing along the U.S.-Mexico border when, uh, when he was shot and killed by a, a U.S. Border Patrol agent. Um, it, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting that um, over the years, the, you know, the conservatives on the Supreme Court have tried to rein in this Bivens case, which, like I said, created a remedy that Congress hadn't created. And so that's kind of what Alito's opinion is is rooted in is the idea that we're not supposed to be extending it further if anything we should be limiting it and then you had obviously a headline making concurrence by um justices uh thomas and gorsuch i believe thomas wrote it and gorsuch joined it saying that bivens entirely should be overturned so that's where the far right wing of the conservative court is heading but um for now it looks like just a a, a further um narrowing of the of the bivens um or 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 not an extension of bivens is how they would put it i i think speaking of attempts to overturn previous precedents uh we are heading into another arguments week and um on march 4th we are going to be hearing about the june medical case 
Yeah, so this is the perhaps one of the marquee cases of the term so far. Um, it presents the ever-prickly issue of abortion at the Supreme Court. Um, in the case, we've talked about it a little bit before, but just to kind of give our listeners just a, a bit of a refresher, it is a challenge to a Louisiana law that um, introduces a requirement for abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. So, you know, if there's a clinic in Shreveport or something like that, within a certain number of mile radius, um, an abortion doctor um, should be able to, you know, go to a hospital every once in a while and be admitted to practice uh, medicine there. So uh, the challengers, which include a a clinic and and two um, anonymous abortion doctors, um, they say that this is going to totally restrict access because it's going to force um, some of the clinics where, you know, abortion doctors can't actually comply with the new regulations to close. In fact, it's going to be so bad, they say, that it's going to leave one doctor in the entire state of Louisiana to perform the, you know, 10,000 abortion procedures that happen there every every year. Now, I feel like I'm getting a bit of deja vu because this seems really similar to the Texas case, um, you know, Whole Woman's Health uh, from 2016. In fact, you're right, because um, in that case, it was like a virtually identical law that the Supreme Court struck down on a five to four basis, holding exactly that, that um, this that these new requirements on doctors are, you know, a substantial obstacle. And I'm quoting there from the uh, decision by Justice Breyer in the path of women seeking a pre-viability abortion, um, an undue burden on abortion access and thus violate the Constitution. So you might ask. What's different? If, if in 2016 they struck down um, this law as an undue burden, how is this even a conversation right now? Could it be the makeup of the court? I have to think that's one potential <laughs> answer. That That's certainly a plausible theory. Uh, although, you know, some of the, uh, uh, I would say that the Louisiana Attorney General's office would take exception to that. They say, even though the laws were identical, in a case like this, and indeed in, in abortion cases, you have to do things on a case-by-case basis. So they say in the Texas case, um, there was a way underdeveloped record about the actual effect of this law versus in the Louisiana case where they say that this law won't actually force any clinics to close. Um, the abortion doctors are perfectly capable of uh, meeting these requirements, um, and therefore it doesn't constitute an undue burden. But as you say, um, Justice Kennedy, um, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who joined the... Um, you know, the majority in Whole Woman's Health to strike down the Texas law, he obviously is retired, and he's been replaced by Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Um, the really big question mark in um, that's everyone's going to be paying attention to at oral arguments next week is what is Chief Justice John Roberts going to do? He obviously was, um, you know, with the liberals when the case came up um, originally on a stay application, so this was a, a move by the clinic and the doctors um, challenging the law to basically prevent it from taking effect um, uh, until they can, you know, brief the case and do its full appeal. And so he actually voted to block the law from taking effect. Now, the the record has been more fully developed, and uh, it's going to be really fascinating to see whether Roberts's opinions or his position um, will hold, um, especially considering the fact that he was in the minority in Whole Women's Health. But as you say, you know, this is this is a case about precedent. Um, you know, it, it, a lot of people, um, especially in, in progressive circles, are interpreting this as a bellwether about where this new Supreme Court majority is heading when it comes to abortion rights and abortion restrictions. 
Well, I know that there was an amicus in this case from like over 200 Republican lawmakers who were asking basically, you know, use this case, Supreme Court justices and overturned Roe v. Wade. Uh, But as we talked about, I think a a few episodes back, um, it might be more likely to that the the court might chip away at some of its previous um, precedents rather than do a wholesale overturning of Roe v. Wade. Right. So that's the Hail Mary, right? I mean, I I think that you could reasonably see um, maybe a Gorsuch, maybe a Thomas, when this decision comes down, suggest that they use this case as an opportunity to chip away it or to even just overturn wholesale Roe v. Wade. But as far as a majority decision goes, I think that's everyone agrees it's pretty unlikely. But um, the I would say that the Trump administration, uh, the U.S. Solicitor General, Noel Francisco, he's taken kind of a more incremental approach, which is to focus on this whole women's health ruling and say, we think that these two cases can be read um, to not conflict with each other. You can have... You can, you don't have to strike down, or you don't, ha- excuse me, you don't have to overturn Whole Woman's Health to rule in favor of the Louisiana restrictions here. But, um, the Trump administration says, if you don't think that you can, Supreme Court, you should just get rid of Whole Woman's Health. And so, again, um, it could be a more incremental approach in favor of tolerating um, some of these restrictions on abortion that I think it's fair to say a lot of Republican state houses will be watching. Um, is this new conservative majority going to be, you know, more tolerant of uh, different uh, restrictions on the procedure if it has an impact on access? I certainly think pretty much all our listeners are going to be tuning in to those arguments on March 4th. Um, I'll be looking to see who writes uh, the opinions, uh, Jimmy, after your uh, story this week, looking at who's kind of been the the biggest writer for the for the term so far. Yeah. So, I mean, we're pretty early in the in the term. We're not yet to the, you know, churn and burn phases of uh, the spring or the early summer. But yeah, so far in the 11 argued cases we've had so far, um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has actually been the most productive. She's got six opinions under her belt, um, which is more than any other justice on the court. Um, Those include uh, three majority opinions, and they include three dissents. In fact, the only dissents that have been written. So if you do the math, that shakes out to about 27% of all of the um, opinions written in argued cases. So maybe that could allay some of the um, concerns over the um, justice's recent health scares, which have, you know, not been insignificant, but uh, it seems like she's really hitting the ground running in the in the 2019-20 term. We'll, we'll see if that productivity um, keeps up. I, I suspect maybe, you know, some of the other justices will will, will tune into some of these cases, but uh, yeah, Justice Ginsburg, she's be definitely like, been, uh, she's been cracking. Yeah, they'll be like, give us a, a chance here. I have to say, though, um, everything from her exercise routine to her travel schedule during, like, the recess to to this i'm like she just makes me feel a little inferior <laughs> like i have to yeah. keep up here there's a there's a fountain of youth thing going on right there i don't know yeah. what it exactly it is but um to that end yeah next month she will be 87 i wonder how she'll celebrate maybe with a with a visit to the opera i know that's kind of one of her <laughs> favorites that is her her jam for sure but you know um i think a big one will be if she can hang on to the court past uh Justice Stevens, who I think maybe had the record at 90 years old back in uh, 2010. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, uh, we'll have to go check the, those stats with our, our data editor um, and get back to everyone on that. And that, that actually would be interesting to kind of uh, take a look at kind of who's been oldest. A future episode, serving. no doubt. Future episode, yes. I think that'll do it for us today, though. Thanks so much, Jimmy. It's been good to talk uh, through this busy week with you. Absolutely. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Suzanne Moniak, Matt Fair, and Jeff Overly. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.